So if you're familiar at all with Lent, if you grew up in, with Lent, um, officially Lent began, at least in the Protestant tradition and the Catholic tradition, um, uh, on Ash Wednesday, also known as Valentine's Day this year. It's a real weird paradox, but those, those things happened. Um, uh, began so a, little, a couple weeks ago. The Orthodox Church actually has a couple more weeks before they begin Lent, but, but most of the global church right now is in this season of Lent. As one who didn't grow up with Lent as a normal practice, um, but is learning to kind of discover some of the history and tradition of Lent, um, I imagine that you may have had some different experiences as well. Lent usually is for a lot of people, or at least kind of in the general public, a time of giving up things. Um, whether it's chocolate or alcohol or some other thing, uh, it's an abstinence for 40 days. For some, it's kind of a very penitential thing. It's, it's a, a time to kind of examine our own life uh, in light of all that God calls us into and kind of see where we measure up or don't measure up. Uh, for some, it's this tr- attempt to kind of enter into the suffering of Christ. Um, as we move in, like with Luke's gospel, as we've spent the last couple of weeks talking about, as we kind of make our way towards the cross, um, it's, it's a time to let ourselves kind of enter into the weight of, of sin and brokenness, whether it's ours or our neighbors, our communal sin, and all those kind of things. And I would say Lent is, all, in some ways, all of those things to some degree or another. They all have reasons and histories where they began and why, why the church globally um, and different traditions kind of do different things. But as a faith family, we've said that over the last few years as we've become, tried to make Lent a part of our rhythm, we said that we want to enter Lent in a way that, um, that holds in tension the reality that always at the end of Lent is the cross, and not just the cross, but the resurrection. And so, so we call Lent, and along with the Orthodox Church, the bright sadness, a journey in which every movement, even into the darks and depths of our sin, our neighbor's sin, our collective sin, even into our own um, needing to give up in order to, to receive more of what it is that Jesus offers, and all the kind of difficulties and darkness that those things do, it's always with this light shining on us of the fact that what the only way in which we actually get to receive those things, get to experience those things, even get to feel the depth of our own weight is in light of the fact that God died for us and rose again for us and lives for us. And the fact that Jesus intercedes for us even in this moment. And so as we enter into Lent, like we're entering into Lent with the heart and with the attention that, yes, we need more of Jesus that our lives don't quite live up fully to the life that Jesus would have for us. But that's not a condemnation. That's an invitation. Lent is an invitation to enter into a time with others who are doing the same thing, to ask for more of Jesus, to seek more of Jesus in our lives, to let our lives be lived more like Jesus' life. And so this Lent season... Um, we have a bunch of rhythms and resources which you can use to kind of do this in between these days, these Sundays. You can find that on the app and in the website. And in this time, we're actually going to let the words of Jesus to the church be the words that call us into the heart of Lent. Again, this desire to to let what needs to be exposed be exposed so that we might actually be invited into the more that God has for us. Does that make sense? So with that in mind, let me pray for us, and then um, 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 Rebecca is going to read from the revelation of Jesus. Father, we thank you that 
what we enter into in this season is not a um, not an attempt to try to earn or to do or to correct in our own efforts what is off and wrong, or not even a time to just to just waller in our own depravity, Father Lord. As true as it is, and as 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 abundantly evident as it is that we are not holy and fully all that we are meant to be in you. But rather, Father, in the midst of that revelation, it's a revelation that we see only because Jesus is alive and speaks to us, calls us into life that overcomes because He's overcome. A life of joining with Him because He lives. And so I just pray as we enter into this time that your words through your scripture, the words of your Son, would open our hearts. Lord, that whatever fears or constraints or even histories might keep us from hearing what we need to hear, that in the name of Jesus, that our ears would be open, that our eyes would be able to see. All this we pray with Lord, a humble confidence. Not knowing exactly what you might show us, but knowing that whatever you show us is life and life forever in Jesus. So it's in his name we pray. Amen. This is Revelation 9. I'm sorry, Revelation 1, verses 9 through 20. I, John, with you all the way in the trial and the kingdom and the passion and patience in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of God's word, the witness of Jesus. It was Sunday, and I was in the spirit praying. I heard a loud voice behind me, trumpet clear and piercing, write what you see into a book. Send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. I turned and saw the voice. I saw a gold menorah with seven branches, and in the center, the Son of Man, in a robe and gold breastplate, hair a blizzard of white, eyes pouring fire blaze, both feet furnace fired bronze, his voice a roaring waterfall, right hand holding the seven stars his mouth a sharp biting sword, his face the sun unfiltered. I saw this and fainted dead at his feet. His right hand pulled me upright. His voice reassured me, don't fear. I am first. I am last. I'm alive. I died, but I came to life, and my life is now forever. See these keys in my hand? They open and lock death's doors. They open and lock hell's gates. Now write down everything you see, things that are, things about to be. The seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven-branched gold menorah, do you want to know what's behind them? The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The menorah's seven branches are the seven churches. Thank you, Rebecca. <clears throat> so that's... That's how the revelation begins. 
Jesus alive and blazing, um, described in many ways through these different testimonies of different uh, manifestations of the Messiah, the King, the Chosen One, the, um, the, the Son of David, the Son of Man in the Old Testament. Described as the sage, the priest, the prophet to come in all of his glory. Speaking to John, his beloved, his friend, his servant on the Sunday. And speaking to him so that he might speak to his faith families. And this, this is how the revelation ends. He who sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Also, he said, Write this. Once again, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said it to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the fountain of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers shall have this heritage, and I will be their God, and they shall be my inheritor. That's how the revelation ends. God's desire, need, purpose, and plan satisfied. All things new in our lives, whole, in, and through, and with Him. What an ideal picture, right? An image that has propelled the hopes of billions over millennia. And yet, as we were reminded at Advent, what we call the beginning is often the end, as T.S. Eliot said. And to make an end is to make a beginning. The end is where we start from. The end is where we start from. The paradox of our faith is that we don't wait for the end. Merely holding on and holding out for some distant future. But what we live today in the end, because that is where our faith, our life actually begins. Our faith, our life actually begins at the it is done. What did Jesus say in Revelation 21? I make, not will make, all things new. It is finished, he said on the cross. It is done, he said in the Revelation. Jesus' rule and reign, the one who sat up on the throne, the one depicted in chapter 1 in all of his glory, like his journey to and through the cross, is not only or firstly an ideal end, but has indeed come to this house as we talked about last week, to our community, through his acts of restoration for us, for his finding us, welcoming us home, inviting us in, Digging us up as the stories that led up to Lent told us. Our lives are lived in response to what we've received. More specifically to salvation, which comes through a life lived in kind to his life given for us. Remember what Jesus said last week in the story of Zacchaeus? That salvation didn't come because of Zacchaeus' Repentance, salvation came when Zacchaeus responded to what Jesus had already done for him. Salvation comes through a life lived in kind to the life given for us. Our lives made right through his and our lives lived loyally to. That is, in honor of and aligned with the intent of the life that is given for us. Not just our salvation, but the salvation of our community comes through that. Remember what we said in preparation for today. That righteous person is not the one who observes a particular code of ethics, but rather a person or community granted a special relationship of acceptance in the presence of God. This is how the Old Testament describes righteousness. That relationship is maintained by acting in loyalty to the giver of the unearned status. That's what it means to be righteous. That's what righteousness is. It's an act of loyalty to the one who has given us righteousness. 
It's an act of honor, an act of alignment, of intent. And now I know we all have different reactions to the idea of loyalty, especially in our day and age, right? Seems like loyalty is challenged at every, every corner and every turn. It seems like you have to be loyal to very particular things in very particular ways to be a part of something. It feels like loyalty is both this sense of, of that we feel in this current age, this sense of thing that gives us an identity of who we're loyal to, tells us who we are, and yet at the same time we're always being pulled and tugged to be loyal to different things. We all feel different reactions to the idea of loyalty, to acting rightly in honor of and intent of the one who we're aligned with, even our faith, who wants to have their loyalty questioned, especially to God. Our different reactions are evident, especially in the season of Lent. Again, which presumes to call into question our loyalty, or at least point out where we're lacking, right? Isn't, again, isn't that the idea of Lent to some degree? Whether you've experienced it directly or indirectly, the general assumption of Lent is that we're disloyal in some way. That our disloyalty at, at minimum was the necessity of the cross Jesus is offering for us. That our disloyalty continues to keep us in need of repentance and penitence and making new what has been distorted. Yet the goal of the Lenten journey is not to sulk in our disloyalty nor excuse or justify it like the Pharisee in the temple, remember? We're not trying to, to sulk in, our, in our, um, uh, our neediness in our disloyalty, nor are we trying to say, hey, but, but listen, we do enough to make up for it. No, the aim of the Lenten season is not to overcome our sins, nor to overwhelm our inadequacies of faith with acts of faith. The Lenten rhythms, the practices, the things that we do are not an attempt to overcome our sins to fill our inadequacies with right acts. No, the Lenten road is a journey meant to stir our thirst for life whole and holy and forever and to receive from the fount without payment, like Jesus said at the end. To confess as the psalmist cried, without shame, as for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me. That's the aim of Lent. To, to stir that thirst and that hunger and that, for that whole and forever life that is offered to us without payment. And find that through our neediness and openness to receive and respond in kind, we actually conquer. Not in our efforts or our plans, but in our being aware of and accepting where we are when the revelation of our disloyalty, our unrighteousness comes to light along the journey over the coming days. Maybe even today. No, not in our efforts or our plans do we conquer, but in being aware and accepting what is done for us and given for us. As we respond in kind, in likeness to the one who had given himself for us, with steadfastness and sacrificial love, the same steadfastness and sacrificial love we've received. If we miss the aim of Lent, well, we'll end up nowhere at the end. We'll miss out on the start. But that's why we prepare for the journey. Our perspective, hopefully, over these last few weeks has been aligned with the direction of Lent. The reason why we did the things that we did, talked about the stories we talked about, have kind of slowed our way into Lent is so that we might actually enter in with our perspectives at the right, on the right focus, our eyes set on the end, the brightness through the sadness, the light through the darkness, so that we might listen to Jesus to live with Jesus.
listen to Jesus to live through Jesus. Again, anew and forever. That's the aim of both Lent and the letters to the seven churches in the Revelation. Jesus, King, seen for all He is, in all of His glory and wonder and splendor, speaking to those for whom He completed His work, made new, righteous, whole, into whom He continues to give Himself. Speaking of the Revelation, what Rebecca read for us is an apocalyptic unveiling, a, a revel- revealing story of the universe and its multi-realm reality, but it's framed in a pastoral letter. I don't know everybody's experience with Revelation, but usually we think of Revelation of dragons and demons and, and harlots and grand battles and all those kind of things, right? But Revelation doesn't begin with those spectacles. It begins with the spectacle of Jesus in all of His glory revealed. And Jesus speaking to churches, to His people, before the story unfolds. The author, John, was a pastor and an apostle closely connected to the seven named churches in this narrative of cosmic proportion. While the pastoral shepherding of John is is penned by John, the beloved, later called the divine or the theologian, it's actually Jesus Christ, the chief shepherd, who addresses his flock directly. This isn't John's words to his people. This isn't like the letters that Paul writes to the churches at Ephesus. This isn't the letter like Peter writes to his friends or that John writes in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. This is the revelation of Jesus through John to the churches. The fact that the revelation begins with Jesus' pastoral words to the seven unique congregations reminds us that a believing community is the context for the life of faith. That in the end, it's we get to be a part of salvation coming. It's our life together that is salvation for the community, which is a pretty incredible thing. As the people of Jericho learned in our final preparatory story, a community salvation comes because of the restoration of the lost, those who have been sought, named, and whom Jesus gave himself for. And those same lost ones responding in kind, responding to what they have received. Such a revelation is still our expectation and is still the hope of our community today, in our world today. In this way, the fantastic story of the Revelation is prophetic. It's prophetic pastoral counsel. It's not just just prophetic in trying to tell us the future. It's prophetic in a way that calls us into the wholeness of life with God and counsels us on how we might grab hold of that. The phrase translated in most of your versions, if you read the ESV, for, for the letters um, that are about to follow in chapters 2 and 3. It says, The words of him who, which introduces each section, actually reads, These things says the one. And is the Old Testament formula used in the prophets well over a hundred times to introduce a new specific word from Yahweh himself. So this formula demands that chapters 2 and 3 of the Revelation be seen as a group of prophetic messages, words calling God's people to righteousness, a life of loyalty to the one who makes right, rather than as just mere letters. Here's the formula or pattern of Jesus' prophetic pastoral counsel that I think we'll, we'll see throughout our time in Lent this season. Each letter contains an acknowledgement of relationship. An identity in Jesus, an encouragement, an admonishment, and a promise through Jesus. First, the churches are not referred to in terms of their size, their status, their reputation, their purity, or their heroic feats. 
but rather they are location, simply, and the spirit that indwells them. Each address begins by acknowledging the angel of that geographic assembly of ordinary believers. An acknowledgement that is that the, this the acknowledgement that the divine and human are in relationship. When it says to the angels of the church of Ephesus, the angel of the church of Ephesus, it's a it's a recognition and acknowledgement that our life is not just ours. We don't just live this on our own. We live this in union with the divine. A relation that is subjected to loyalty to the divine. Because it's not just the spirit of God in the churches, but it's an angel. It's one who's under the authority of Jesus in the same way we are. In submission to Christ, guided by His rule, words, and actions. The church is never only physical nor only spiritual. And while the angel has the basic biblical function of a messenger to the church, the angels function as more than messengers here. The angels function as authoritative witnesses, overseeing the plan of God as it works out among His people. The angels are servants of God, working under the authority of the sower king, if you remember that from the wheat and the weeds in the net parables. That is, they carry out His orders to reform, challenge, and help the churches. And so the church, us, we are in divine partnership, in submission to Jesus. That's the reality of our existence and our life. And while the church's reference geographically is identified through its relationship to Jesus, who is Jesus, who Jesus is, his person defines the church. Every church in the letters that are to follow, contends Eugene Peterson, is located in a specific place. All churches exist, exist under the conditions of geography, politics, and economics. Each church is visible. At the same time, every church gets its identity from Christ and what he does. Churches exist only in derivation from Christ. Every church is named in its location, in this, in this relationship with these, the angels, the divine, in partnership and submission to Jesus, and actually has its identity in what Jesus, who Jesus is for them, specifically. We'll notice that the description of Jesus' person in these seven letters matches the description of Jesus in chapter 1 and differs for each faith family. All the things that Rebecca read for us, all the descriptions of Jesus will be played out piece by piece in the seven churches. While Jesus, while Jesus wholly provides the church with her identity, no singular church depicts Jesus wholly. Each congregational identity is partial. Each church is defined by only a piece of the vision. No single congregation exhibits the wholeness of Christ. It's impossible to look at any one instance of the church and find an entire representation of Jesus. Although we very certainly can be led to that wholeness as we listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. But we only get a glimpse. From the person of Jesus comes a word of encouragement. In each letter, Jesus knows each faith family, particularly in ways that He can speak specifically to them. Jesus speaks to His people as one who lives among them. He knows them in their lives and affirms them not, as we'll see, for their contributions to society or meeting their idealized potential, but for their loyalty to His person and intent. For their walking in honor of Him and in, in the same intent that He has given them, His purposes. For the church, as we know, is not perfect. We're prone to wonder, even perhaps most significantly in the guise of faith. And so, in each letter, there's a word of admonition. 
An admonition from Jesus is necessary so that our religious motions do not lose their spirit motivations. This is not condemnation, this is care. It's a loving act of a friend to call the ones he loves out of a way of self-destruction and into a way of abundance. To call us into the life that he's actually given us whole and full and forever. And we know this because what I love about our Lord and Savior and what we see from our friend is that he does not leave us with a warning but with a promise. Even to those he could find no affirmation in, he still leaves a promise. Each prophetic utterance concludes with what Jesus gives. A promise to those who conquer. Again, whose life is lived in response in kind to what they've received. Jesus assumes that they will achieve what he has set out for us to accomplish because he is the first and the last. And they are in him. These promises are not rewards, but their destiny which completes life begun in faith. As one commentator notes. So enough about the general idea of Revelation and its pattern. Let's see if we can see the pattern in the first prophetic utterance in Revelation 2. If you have your Bible, you can turn with me to Revelation chapter 2, 1 through 7, or it'll be up on the screen, whatever you prefer. In Revelation 2, it says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, These things says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. But I've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is, the paradise, which is in the paradise of God. In ancient times, Ephesus was described as the first and greatest metropolis of Asia. Ephesus was the highway to Rome and the gateway to and from Asia, and it's in modern-day Turkey. Ephesus was, therefore, an important city economically for the entire Eastern Roman Empire. Politically, it was a free city. It was a city of wealth and affluence. It allowed it to be self-governing. There was no troops could garrison there. And it was a place where essential political and judicial cases were tried. It was a center of importance. The prosperity of the city was matched only by its religiosity. It was not only a place of wealth and aspiration of jobs... It was also a center of worship for Artemis specifically, or Diana, Diana as the Greeks called her. The Temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. 425 feet long, 220 feet wide, with 160 60-foot columns, 32 of which were gilded with pure gold. While the temple was gloriously crafted, Artemis herself was actually portrayed rather modestly as a squat, black, mini-breasted figure. So ancient that no one knew where it had come from. So while Artemis was, was given this modern, grand, beautiful temple, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, herself portrayed was actually this really ancient, old, so far back into antiquity, they weren't even sure where she started, God. 
There was this long history of faith and religiosity in Ephesus that had become modernized and made to, to look in grandeur what the people had bought into. From this ancient root of religion sprung a city that was a notorious center of superstition and the marketing of religious goods and services to cure every ill and reverse every misfortune. Again, from this little figurine to this grand 425-foot-long, 220-foot-wide, 120-foot-tall temple. Think about what had to go into everything that created a city that would do something like that, right? So now the city isn't just religious in the sense of like that they're faithful. Now they're a city that's actually so interweaven with religiosity that they actually, a part of their identity is all the ways in which you could figure out how to overcome life through religion and faith and spirituality was for sale in Ephesus. If you had a problem, spiritually, physically, remember, especially in the first century, all those things would have been totally aligned, right? Spiritual and physical wouldn't have been separated. You came to Ephesus. You could find what you needed. If you were sick in the head or sick in the spirit, if you needed something that you didn't have, if you wanted something more, where did you go? You went to Ephesus and you could find it. Ephesus was prosperous, influential, profoundly religious, spiritual, and culturally diverse city. It attracted all from all over the world those who longed for physical wealth or spiritual wealth. And to add to this description, it was also the postal entrance for the correspondence of each of the following six faith families referenced in the Revelation. And it's no wonder then that the words of Jesus start with his brothers and sisters here. Brothers and sisters that we actually know quite a bit about. While on the surface, Ephesus would seem to have been an unpromising soil, sorry, for the sowing of the seed of Christianity. It was there that Christianity had some of its greatest triumphs. Paul nearly turned the city upside down when faith in Jesus started to impact the economics of religion, as Acts 19 details. We know it was a city in which Paul stayed the longest, as Acts 20 tells us, in the city which called Timothy its first overseer or an elder, as 1 Timothy 1 tells us. In Ephesus, we find the fruitful and faithful Aquila and Priscilla as they come alongside of Apollos, as Acts 18 unveils. It was to the elders of Ephesus whom Paul so intimately and vulnerably addressed in his farewell remarks before his final imprisonment, the ones he cherished most deeply. John, the writer of our letter today, would later become the leading figure in the faith family of the city. As legend has it, John brought Mary, the mother of Jesus, there. In fact, it's in Ephesus that many believe Mary is actually buried. The Ephesian community of faith was solid, respectable, and faithful. And as the book of Ephesians still is, a book that's one of the only books in which Paul details what life in Christ is meant to be like without directly like attacking some sort of wrong that the church is doing. Ephesus was very much the ideal for the church then and has become for us even now. Now, as we said, each prophetic utterance or letter begins with the vision of the person of Jesus. In the words of the faith family of Ephesus, Jesus is described as he holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands. As Jesus told us in chapter 1, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Here, Jesus is described as having every church in his hand. 
No spirit of any church exists outside of his person and purpose, no matter our opinion of that church. They are under his authority and his judgment. That's what right hand means. They're accountable for doing things his way and only his way. Not our way, not their way, but his way. As Jesus said, the lampstands are the seven churches themselves. And Jesus is not any one of them, but rather walking among all of them. Their light comes from his light. His presence is the one thing that brings them together. And Jesus is the center. Physically, literally, in the description, they orbit around him. This image should be both encouraging and challenging to how we view the church and other churches, including our faith family. If Jesus is the center, the one around whom we orbit, whose authority and judgment, whose way of being is what we're accountable to, if we are under His authority and the light of our existence comes wholly through Him, even if only we can only partially reflect it, then what does that mean for the way we judge our church and other churches? What standard do we use? What does this say about celebrity church culture? Or the way we condemn it? The way we compare and contrast and compete with one another. Ephesus was the greatest of the named cities in the seven letters. It was the greatest of the named churches in the seven letters. They were a faithful faith family, and it would be easy for them and others to hold them as the standard, would it not? Yet Jesus reminds them that He is their standard and the only standard. Jesus is the standard and the only standard. Ephesus and Christ City are but one of many, not in contrast or comparison, but in orbital unity with others whom Jesus holds, knows, leads, and shines His light through. having acknowledged their identity as one of the churches through which Jesus lived and worked. Jesus encourages the Ephesian believers in their particular life of faith in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 2. Jesus knows their work, their toil, their patient endurance to discern and courageously stand against those among them who are evil, having tested those who call themselves apostles, those specially sent messengers, but who are not, finding them to be false. Listen, such a sermon is no easy task. It's no small endeavor to hold fast to the person and words and practices of Jesus amid a city full of other options, especially religious and spiritual ones, right? It's a city literally made for the religious person in which every option is available to them. Every option that would be co-mingled and, and, and put in with Jesus is available to them. And yet they've held fast to Jesus particular, weeded out the things that aren't Jesus things. To remain faithful to Jesus alone amid a culture that sells every religious good and service known to humanity is no small feat. It would be easy to get tired of having to constantly wrestle against, is this thing being sold to us actually Jesus' thing or something else? It would be easy to become lax and give out to sheer fatigue or convenience. Why do we keep fighting this? It would have been easier to live then like the Nicolaitans, those who thought there was no need to actually fight the flow of religious intermingling. Redeem it, they would say, or at least let grace cover it and take advantage of what the city and culture offer. Again, they're just selling goods and services that everybody needs. So we can just claim them and make them ours. 
There's no need to really stand apart, to keep fighting against all these things. Freedom in Jesus means we can participate fully as long as we keep Jesus at least somewhere in the conversation. We can, we can buy into all the fixes as long as Jesus is still somewhere in the conversation. So why not have it all in your life of faith? Apparently Jesus hated such works. Verse 6. Or at least the relational and daily results of such faith. For they were the works of the flesh and not the fruit of the Spirit, as Paul would so aptly describe to the Galatians. Works born not out of loyal love for Jesus and others, but out of cultural religious expectations for faith. For out of a, out of a willingness to just give in and not to discern, to, to, to filter out, to remember as we walked through the Sermon on the Mount, to be ones who actually discerned what was who were sheep and who were sheep in wolf's clothing, right? The Ephesians saw through the shallowness of the Nicolaitan ethic and held fast to Jesus. We'll actually see this same group not too long from now in another church that didn't quite discern as well as the Ephesians did. But the Ephesians held fast to Jesus, who he really was, what he really taught, and the life he really called people to share with him. Yet, as is often the case... Constant battles harden even the softest hearts. In verse 4 it says, But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. At first has two meanings. The Jesus followers in Ephesus had abandoned the love, the tender-hearted passion and compassion that was the first fruit of their faith in Jesus. At one time they were eager to help the weak in faith and needy, for they had been them not too long before. They were eager to help the weak and the needy physically and spiritually because they were them. They were hungry to know God intimately and thirsty for more of Him in their lives, in the lives of their neighbors and their friends. Yet a long faith always goes through valleys of shadows and boredom and can result in passion only for causes and not for relationships that are at the heart of faith. Not that any of us have ever experienced that, right? Which brings us to the second meaning of at first. The Ephesians had lost their first love. What they were willing to live for was not a relationship with Jesus through which they related to one another in the world, letting the life of Jesus be their model for relating and responding to one another in the world, but rather they lived for dogma, for truth, and truth alone. They were protectors, not lovers. Fighters, not lovers. They were praying not for those who made life hard on them, but praying against them. They, like the psalmist of Psalm 139, were ready to oppose all they deemed wicked. I hate them with my complete hatred. I count them my enemies. They recognized that anything that would pull them out of the way of Jesus was evil and wrong, right? They, they discerned it. So truth, as long as we got the truth right, like I hate it. I don't want anything that speaks against what God speaks. But unlike the psalmist, they were not willing to pray. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Examine me and know my disquieting thoughts, this, this rage of energy and emotion within me. And then specifically, see if there be any grievous or harmful way in me. It's okay to be opposed wholeheartedly against the things that are opposed to God. In fact, that's a virtue. But it's not okay 
to not ask to be led in the way ancient and everlasting. To discern and to examine are my ways of responding to the evils similar to the way God responds to the evils? Are they harmful in any way to His plans and purposes? Again, loyalty is not just I claim the name of Jesus. Loyalty is I live with towards the intent and purposes of Jesus. It's, it's, it's not bad at all to be opposed to the evil things, to broken things, to not Jesus things. But we have to go a step further and not just be opposed to those things, but for the actual way of Jesus. To be led in the way ancient and everlasting. To this hardness of heart, this unwillingness to be examined, perhaps because they believe they were indeed the standard, or at least set the standard, Jesus warns the church of Ephesus that to abandon the most primary reality of their faith and love will mean that they will no longer have the place they think is theirs amongst the churches. What they value, they take pride in, and hold as their standard for life in this world and their relationship with God will no longer be theirs. Jesus will remove Himself from their lampstand, remove their lampstand from them. Instead of giving in to the hardening of heart, the unexamined life, instead of losing the thing that they're after, Jesus reminds them to remember and repent. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Remember the grace that you have received. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. The grace that you've received. Remember that time when you recognized in the temple that you weren't, you were the tax collector? Oh God, make atonement for me. Or that maybe, just maybe you were the Pharisee, but instead of covering up your, excusing your, self-revelation with all the things you can say you do well, you actually pray the same prayer as the tax collector. Do you remember that time? That time when you needed Jesus? Jesus gave Himself for you. Repent. Turn. Grab hold of that reality. And do the works you did at first. Works that came out of, like Zacchaeus last week, an overflow response to Christ there with you, giving His life for you. After the warning comes the exhortation to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to listen and respond. And then the promise to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. Remember then from what you have fallen. Repent, do the works you did at first. The one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The remembrance is useless, says Eugene Peterson, if it moves into different indifference or rebellion. Repentance is a resolve to return to those early truths, to being a lost sheep, a lost coin, a tax collector, a Pharisee, a brother, whether young or old. To the first reality that we have felt really secure upon, when we experienced the Father running towards us and making the humiliation of us, we experienced our need for God and recognized that we we're in the very place where God was making atonement for us. To see God actually rescue us from our death, invite us and honor us, 
by coming into our lives, standing at the door, knocking. By returning to the first love where we are rewarded with the first food, says Jesus in Revelation. The return to our origin includes a return to God. Not only loves, not only a love, but to love us, but to feed us. When we return to the loving God in the world for which he died, we return to Eden, to a place where harmony existed. Jesus' promise takes us back to Genesis, where God and humanity dwelt in harmony and perfect paradise together. What Jesus offers those whose loyalty is demonstrated in more than a resolve for truth, but a way of life in truth that is love, a life lived in perfect harmony and union, is a life where we walk through a day of our labors with God Himself. Think about that. What Jesus offers to those who conquer is the opportunity to stroll through the day and all the labors that we have and all the things that we are made for with God with us, speaking to us as a friend, as a counselor, as one who we know without doubt that he is for us and with us. Heaven on earth as much as it can be. So, for just a couple moments, let's consider Can you remember your first love? What it was like to be loved and shown the love of God at first? Do you remember it? For some of us, I know it was a long time ago. For some, it might not have been. For some of us, we've had different experiences of that first love. We felt the firstness over in a fresh, in new ways. Most of us, I know, have experienced it in some way. But it's easy to get far beyond it. To forget it. Let it just become a story and not feel it like Jesus encourages us to. Are your actions of faith a loyal, of loyalty in kind? That is, are they a response to the love that you've received or are they something else? Do the way, are there your religious actions, even in, especially even in this season, a response of what you've received? Or are they just expectations of the culture? A mingling of things that you've picked up along the way of the goods and services sold as religion. How might Jesus be inviting you to return to that love today? In this journey of Lent. You won't have time to think through all the questions, but these will be included in the sermon notes. They'll go out with everything else. But for a couple minutes, for about three minutes, we're just going to have quiet. And let's let the Spirit lead you into whatever question he would have you think about. I'll pray for us, and then I'll lead us in communion in just a few moments. I thank you that Jesus Jesus' correction is not go do, but first remember what's been done. Help us, Father to be ones who do only because we remember and are responding to what we have received. In your son's name.